It's been a very enjoyable time being with you again, and uh, hey, I, I'm game for a yearly kind of a thing, so uh, we'll, we'll chat about that down the line, especially since Cincinnati is the furthermost western city that has crab cakes. Uh, it's wonderful. You know, Mel and I grew up uh, in Baltimore, and uh, it, it's part of the tradition there to uh, have crabs regularly. Any of you from that part of the country? Well, it made it all the way to Cincinnati. I'd like to know how. If any of you know how, uh, please fill me in afterward. We'll supply a, a, a gaping hole in the history of crab cakes to me. Uh, but uh, Evan and Juanita took us to a wonderful little restaurant, Begali's, is it? And they have uh, the closest thing to Maryland crab cakes uh, that I've had this side of Maryland. So. Uh, if you'd like to make it twice a year, that'd be okay, too. <laughs> if you have this chart, I would like to just make uh, reference to a few things uh, on, the, on the chart to give some uh, continuity and then pick out one particular subject that uh, relates uh, to each one of us as believers in Jesus Christ. Wednesday was the day, day of betrayal, a day of quiet, but the solution for the Sanhedrin as to how they would handle the problem of the Lord Jesus Christ gaining such great popularity in this last week of his ministry. On Thursday, we have uh, the particular passage I'd like to look at this morning with you, the Upper Room Discourse, the most... Uh, intimate of all the Lord's discourses. It is for his disciples particularly, for each one of us as well as he looks down to the future, to those who will come to trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, through the ministry of the apostles. In uh, that Thursday evening, late Thursday, early Friday morning, we see him in Gethsemane and uh, then the betrayal itself takes place and on Friday early Friday Jesus is imprisoned and six trials take place from late Thursday night early Friday morning up to the time of crucifixion from nine until three in the afternoon those six hours of suffering six trials three Jewish trials two of them before daybreak and then a very brief trial right at daybreak and then the Jews realize that they must have the support of the Roman authorities and they go to the uh, praetorium to the seat of judgment where Pilate becomes involved in the whole process it is very interesting and again this shows the the uh, corruption of a of religious facade they go to Pilate but they would not approach him lest they be contaminated for their holy day having just had two illegal trials before daybreak having produced false witnesses who contradicted one another yet they could not be contaminated from their holiness by coming to Gentile territory. Is it amazing 
how empty religion can be. And as I mentioned earlier, how quickly we can fall into that same concept of external facade about who we are without a real living relationship, either in salvation sometimes or in the day-by-day -day walk with our Lord. We can play some serious games, can't we? And it's not just the ancient people of Israel that were prone to that. We all have struggles in that direction. The reality of a living relationship with the true and living God and his son, Jesus Christ. They could not be defiled. So Pilate comes to them. And he doesn't know which way to turn. They mention that... Uh, he did miracles in Galilee, and that gave Pilate a little out because Herod Antipas, who was in charge of, of Galilee and Perea, was in Jerusalem at that time. So there is a change in venue of the trial, and he sent over to Herod Antipas for the second Roman trial. Herod Antipas was the one that put John the Baptist to death. And it says he for a long time had wanted to see Jesus. But Jesus didn't want to see him. Jesus did not speak one word to Herod Antipas. There's absolute silence. He would not even respond to him. He murdered the forerunner in an act of immorality. And the Lord had no time for him whatsoever. Eloquent silence. You do not touch my servant and have any response from me. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord is loyal to John as John was to him. And having inquired of Jesus and questioned him, he sent Herod Antipas sent him back to Pilate for the third trial. Both of them concluding that he had done nothing wrong. But the Jews uh, played a key political card by saying, we have only one king, Caesar. You do not execute this man. You are not Caesar's friend. That was more than Paul could handle politically. And he turned uh, Jesus over to them with a battery of soldiers to have him executed. And he goes off to Calvary to that hour appointed from a past eternity to provide salvation for every one of us. I would like particularly to look this morning at the upper room discourse. The most intimate of the Lord's discourses, there are five discourses in the gospel accounts the first is the Sermon on the Mount that takes place early in his ministry. And then the Bread of Life discourse that takes place at the close of the Galilean ministry. The Good Shepherd discourse that takes place in the Judean ministry. The Upper Room discourse that takes place on Thursday evening of the last week of our Lord. Uh, previous to that on Tuesday, the Olivet discourse. Long discourses as our Lord teaches uh, his disciples particularly. 
If you do have a harmony, and only three or four of you do, on page 209 in Luke chapter 22 and verse 24, we have a prelude to the upper room discourse. And it goes like this, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. As they are going to the upper room to celebrate the Passover and to have the Lord institute the Lord's Supper, they're having a debate. Who's the greatest amongst us? They weren't thinking of Jesus. They were thinking of one another. And I think that arises out of the fact that they are still feeling the euphoria of the great victories of Triumphal Entry Sunday and the cleansing of the temple on Monday and the winning of all of the disputes on Tuesday. It looks like everything is going to work out for the kingdom. And they can just taste what it's going to be like to be sitting on the 12 tribes, the thrones of the 12 tribes, ruling over Israel as was promised to them. The Lord Jesus being the king and these uh, apostles being those who would rule over Israel with him. And uh, they had looked at the temple and they had said, look at these beautiful stones. They probably had picked out their offices. And now they're going to see, hey, I wonder what my particular responsibility is going to be. Well, what nation would you like to be the ambassador to? Well, you know, we just witnessed the, the uh, burial funeral of our ambassador to France. That would not be a bad place to be ambassador. I mean, the cuisine itself. Why do I come back to these things? I don't understand that. It's the only vice still left to Christians, and they're trying to take that away from us. You know? uh, or an ambassador to England. That would be nice. And uh, they're, they're competing for their responsibilities. And can't you hear them talking? I'm the greatest. Hey, we wouldn't quite come at it that boldly. It's not our nature in our Western world to be so proud, but these men were clear on that. Uh, I think Peter had a lot of good things to say. Don't you? <laughs> hey, guys, twice I said the right thing. You remember? I said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, Good for you, Peter. And I said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He said, Good for you, Peter. None of you guys had that to say. Hey, I spoke up. And one of them would say, yeah, Peter, we saw you walking on the water for a step two, and you were rebuked. And he'd respond by saying, well, you didn't even try. I at least took one step on the water. I'm the only man except for the Lord that ever did. And John would say, what would John say? I'm the one that the Lord really loves. Right? Wouldn't he? James might say, hey, I was in the Holy Mount with Peter and John. Hey, the three of us are the best. And they'd talk about their experiences and their preaching and their witnessing and their arguing over who's the greatest. And, and the Lord comes on the scene at that moment. He says, what are you guys talking about? There's silence. And he's going to teach us some things. In this context of who's the greatest, Jesus is going to answer all of the hard questions of life 
for the believer in Jesus Christ. You say serious things when you're about to die. The upper room discourse is just before the Lord is turned over to the Roman authorities for his execution. This is the last side, this side of resurrection, that the Lord's going to talk to his disciples. This is crisis conversation. And he's going to say some important things. The upper room discourse in your Bibles is uh, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Quite a discourse. In your harmonies, it begins on page uh, 210. John chapter 13. Now, this is a long passage of scripture we're looking at in this uh, closing session. I am assuming your familiarity with John 13 through 17, the Upper Room Discourse. And I want to get the broad picture of the big questions that he answers for us. And I think the chapter divisions help us in uh, understanding the content of each of these movements through the Upper Room Discourse. They are bragging on one another. They're talking about who is the greatest. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to give them an illustration of who is the greatest. It is in John 13. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end or to the uttermost. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it in the heart of Judas, has carried Simon's son to betray him. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had finished their feet, washed their feet, taken his garments, sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? Do you know what I've done to you? They're arguing about who is the greatest. And as they went into that upper room, they walked right by a basin, right by a pitcher of water, right by the folded towels. It was customary for someone to wash the feet, just like we had seen with the hypocritical Jews. They could not be defiled by coming into Gentile territory. By walking through the streets of Jerusalem, 
Having already had their ceremonial bath, it was their feet that needed washing, and it was customary for a servant or someone to do that. But when you're arguing over, I'm the greatest, you're in no mood to wash feet. And it should have been done earlier in the, in the meal. The Lord gave them ample opportunity for someone to be moved to do it, to take the place of a servant. But no one was, because they were thinking about who was the greatest. And Jesus, wonderful figure here, lays aside his garment. Sounds like Philippians chapter 2. Girds himself with the towel of a servant and humbles himself and bows down before his disciples and begins to wash their feet. There are a number of levels of teaching here. Uh, he says, you do not all need to be bathed except one. And he spoke of Judas, and that is the bath of salvation. Uh, you all need to have your feet cleansed as you walk through the corrupt world and come into casual contact with sin. Those are lessons that he's teaching. But the primary lesson is a clear one. He says, what have I done to you? If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. Now, some denominations of Christianity do that regularly. Any of you come from that kind of a background? Feet washing background. This uh, practice is not carried on in the epistles. This is the only instance you see of it. And hence, most do not continue to practice it. But the lesson is to be continually practiced. The lesson is this. We are servants. The Lord Jesus says, I have given you an example of being a servant. This is a big question. Have you ever dealt with this issue, who am I? What is, what is my uh, place in life? What is this all about? I call this the, the psychological question, the big identity question. Who am I? And we need to come to the biblical conclusion as a believer in Jesus Christ, we are called to be servants. Jesus says, I have left you an example that you should serve one another. Take the humble place, not the prideful place, but the low place. I experienced washing feet. My father in his declining years and needed to have his feet cared for every day, twice a day. And on occasion, most occasions, I was called on to do that. And on occasion, my children and my wife and my sons-in-laws, uh, the reach was a long reach. It is a humbling thing to bow down on your knees. 
in front of a person. The very posture is a humbling thing. Isn't it? To serve. To take physically a low position that is indicative of the spiritual low position I take with my fellow brother and sister in the Lord. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, when he cites the Lord Jesus Christ as the primary example of being the servant of God, says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who poured out his life and death. And the Apostle Paul said, I am willing to pour out myself as a drink offering. And Timothy is like-minded as I am, willing to give his life for the believers. And even your own Epaphroditus was near to death on your behalf, serving you. That's what we're called to as believers in Jesus Christ. We are servants, servants of God, Servants to one another. Now that sounds really great, but it's tough. Servants have no rights. Servants cannot control their schedule. Servants are at the beck and call of the other person. And there's no response. And when the servant has done all that he should, what does he say? Does anybody know? I am an unprofitable servant. I have done what I should. We're called to be that way. To put the other brother and sister in Christ first. To humble ourselves. And to be a servant. Who am I? That's a big question. What is my identity? What am I called to be as a believer in Jesus Christ? I am called to be a servant. That's just not a title for somebody who is a servant of the Lord? Who is the servant of the Lord? Who? All of us. You first. Four Christians come to a four-way stop sign, nobody should ever move. <laughs> You're first. In honor preferring one another. What churches we would have if we all recognize that we are servants one of another. Now, how do you tell if you're a servant? Well, you can tell generally when people start treating you like one. <laughs> when they assume you're going to do the work. When they don't feel any hesitation of calling you at any ungodly hour of the day. Three o'clock in the morning, I got a flat tire. I know who I'll call. I'll call up at him. There he is. Hey, can you give me a hand? Why do you have an instinct to call certain people in a local church and not others when the crunch comes? Because you know who the servants are. You know it instinctively. You know the person that will say, no problem. I'll give you the help right now. Sure, I'll be there. You can count and you know those people. And you probably have a list that jumps into your mind. People who are glad to help. Nothing is an inconvenience to them. They've caught the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When my son graduated from Dallas Seminary, they had a program in the baccalaureate program in which Dr. Campbell, who was retiring, was being honored. And they had a sculpture made of this John chapter 13, the Lord washing the feet of Peter. It is three-quarter life-size. It's in the courtyard at Dallas Seminary. The sculptor was there. And they asked him if the design was on purpose. Because the Lord is bowing down, washing feet, and his hair has fallen down, covering his cheeks. And if you want to see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to bow down on your knees to look up. They asked him, did you do that on purpose? He said, that's my secret. And I watched as people came to see that new sculpture. And men and women and young seminarians were bowing down on their knees to look up and to the face of Jesus. If you want to see Jesus, you must be a servant. You don't know him any other way. Let this mind be in you. You know what Jesus goes on to say? Do you know what I've done to you? I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet. You know these things. Happy are ye if you do them. You would never guess that happiness comes from being a servant, would you? But it does. It doesn't come from being served. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The generation that is saying, what's in it for me, will never be happy. The Christian who says, what's in it for me in the church, will never be a happy Christian. The happy person is the one who recognizes his niche. Who am I? I am a servant. Let's all say that together. I am a servant of God. That's what our niche, that's who I am. When people are searching around for their identity, here's the identity of every believer. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. In the 14th chapter, the Lord introduces a new subject. Chapter 14 begins and ends with this concept. <clears throat> it is the attitude that I am to have as a servant of God. And again, recognize that servanthood is for all of us. The Lord Jesus Christ says at the beginning and end of this passage, and hence I think it is the key thought of John 14, this part of the upper room discourse, the servant of God is to be characterized by peace and serenity. That's the attitude you and I should have as we walk through our servant pathway. Not an attitude of anxiety and concern and worry, but of peace and serenity. Peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. 
Now, this uh, encouragement to a peaceful, serene attitude of life is not without basis. In John 14, the Lord Jesus will tell us lots of reasons why we should be characterized this way. Number one, I go away, and if I go away, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there ye shall be also. The future sewed up for the Christian. Are you glad for that? Hey. The Apostle Paul will look death straight in its face and say, For me to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. Oh boy. We win. I do believe in pie in the sky by and by. We win. The future is secure. And though our lifely, our earthly path of life be full of trouble, I reckon that the suffering of this present age is not worthy to be compared to the glory that follows. It's not my past experience that motivates me. I am not an existentialist. I do not live for the moment. We live for the future. We press on to the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We live with that day in view, not this day, that day. We remember the Bema seat. And that shapes the way I live today. The future is secure. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead, of, dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Just think of coming to heaven and breathing new air, of touching his hand, and finding we're home. Aren't you glad for that? We are secure. Can that give me peace? Hey, Lord says, there's more than that. I am the way, the truth. We have the truth. The world seeks for this and that and the other thing. Are you glad that you can dogmatically say of all of the religions of the world and all of the searchings of mankind, by the grace of God, he has revealed to me the absolute truth. And I am certain of that. There is a difference, you know. There is no God but one God. And there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Christianity is a narrow, dogmatic religion that claims it is the only truth. I believe that. 
I'm not pluralistic in my ways to heaven. Are you? There's only one way. Now that gives us enormous responsibility to unsaved world. The Lord will talk about that directly. I am to be a serene servant. I have the future secured. I have the truth. I have the word. I have the avenue of prayer that Jesus tells us about in this passage where I can ask in his name. I have the indwelling Holy Spirit which he promises in the upper room discourse. All basis for peace in my life. I need to have a little PS here. Some people come into this world born in a layback condition. Hey, it's great. Now, I happen to be of that sort. I don't worry a whole lot. So it's real easy for me to give this message. But others come in wound up pretty tight. Any of you that way? I mean, I, I know. I, I know it. It's hard. And for somebody to say, oh, don't be anxious. That wouldn't be anxious if he weren't a Christian. And, you know, I, I probably wouldn't be. Hey, man, it's going to work out okay. No problems. That's not necessarily spirituality. And you got to know where you are. Life is not a snapshot. It's a motion picture. And we understand that, that some have a lot more trouble resting in the peace of God than others. And we don't say, oh, you're spiritual and you're not spiritual because of that. It, it, all the complexities of life and the heavy burdens we bear enter into this. But we need to recognize uh, the, the teaching of Jesus here and the teaching of the epistles elsewhere. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God will garrison your heart how you feel and your mind how you think. And it will pass understanding, normal logic. The Christian is to be a serene servant, okay? Let's add that. I am called to be a serene, peaceful servant. Let's all say that together. I am called to be a serene, serene peaceful servant. Okay. Chapters 15 and 16 are a unit. The subject is fruit bearing. It's hard to bear fruit when we're not peaceful. Uh, the Apostle Paul will say that we are to pray for governors, that we might live in peace, that the word of God go forth unhindered, because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We better serve the Lord when we are peaceful. But we are involved in this process of bearing fruit. John 15 and 16 deals with bearing fruit. In John 15, qualitative fruit, fruit of character. In John 16, quantitative fruit, fruit of evangelism. John 15 is a rather complicated chapter. There are a lot of words swirling around. The subject clearly is fruit bearing. I want you to bear fruit. Do you know the sequence? More fruit. What's next? Much fruit, finally. Abiding fruit. 
The subject throughout the chapter is fruit bearing. Fruit bearing is made possible, another recurring word, fruit bearing is made possible by abiding. That's the means to fruit bearing. Now I like words like abiding, mystical words. Abiding in Jesus. What do you, you get visions of somebody up at four o'clock in the morning praying, don't you? He abides in Jesus. And uh, here's a super spiritual, uh, this, this man that lives in the heavenlies. Abiding, kind of a mysterious word. But there's another word that explains abiding, and I can understand a little better. He who abides in me, Jesus says, keeps my commandments. Oh, I can understand that. This is no mysticism anymore. It's keeping the commandments that God gives to us. Do you know some of them? Commandments for the Christian that are found in the Lord's life and in the epistles. Do you know some? Let's have a quick rehearsal of some of these commandments. Go. Love one another. Love one another. Oh, I have to love people? I love you? You love me? Man, that's tough. Doesn't command that we like one another. It does say we have to love one another. Another one. Pardon? Do not lie. What else? Yeah. Be forgiving of one another. Love God. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Pray without ceasing. Remember me. Preach the word. Don't neglect your gift. Give willingly, freely, generously. Boy, I can understand all those things. This is not mysterious. Abiding in Christ is keeping his commandments. You say, oh man, that's just jumping through a lot of hoops. That's back to legalism. You don't even have to have the right motivation. Jesus says, wait a minute. I want you to bear fruit. You do that by abiding. Abiding means keeping my commandments. And the greatest of all commandments is love one for another. It's the motivating commandment. The command to do the right thing with the right motivation. And if we don't do that, it doesn't count. Though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Suppose you come from a, a family of martyrs in the early church and they all get burned up. And now it's your turn. You say, oh, this is part of the way my family lives. I'm gonna... It doesn't count. You get burned for zero. Doesn't make much sense, does it? So it's not just keeping commandments. It's keeping them with the right motivation. Doing it the right way. Not just out of duty or necessity or obligation. But motivated out of love for God and love for his brothers and sisters. That's an important concept. So we're called to bear fruit qualitatively we're called to bear fruit quantitatively in chapter 16 where he says I am I'm going to send the Holy Spirit into the world and through you he is going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment we are the means by which the the world hears 
Christ is not here any longer, but we are. And he says we will do greater works than he did. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, who through us, through weak instruments like us, not the perfection of Jesus Christ, but through people like us, will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. I am a peaceful servant. I am called to be a peaceful servant bearing both qualitative and quantitative fruit for Jesus Christ. John chapter 17 answers the last big question. The first one is that psychological question, who am I? The second, the attitudinal question, how am I to act peacefully? What is my vocation, the vocational question? I am to bear fruit qualitatively and quantitatively. Chapter 17 is a big philosophical question. What is my purpose? Why do I exist? Chapter 17 opens and closes the same way with the same theme. Jesus prays, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was. At the end, he says, glorify me through these people, that their glory, my glory, might rest in them. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. As a creature, I exist to glorify God. Creation exists to glorify God. This is an important concept. Philosophically, this is the question of the one and the many. Is there a single statement that will control everything that I do? that will bring into a unified whole all of the ways I react and respond and choose to act in my day-by-day -day experience? Is there a single statement that will touch everything in my life? Only the Christian has an answer to that. A simple statement that will control every action, that will bring all these many things that are flying at us every day into a unified whole. It is, I live life for the glory of God. I drive my car for the glory of God. I work at the office for the glory of God. I am a mom or a dad for the glory of God. I am a citizen for the glory of God. I pump gas for the glory of God. I witness for the glory of God. I suffer for the glory of God. I endure ill health for the glory of God. Whether by life or death, I live for the glory of God. It answers every detail of life. And as we live our life under this banner, is it for the glory of God? We bring our whole life into a unified whole. And it is why I exist. I am a creature that exists to bring glory to God. If I allow that to govern my life, that concept, that purpose, life makes perfect sense. I live it for the glory of God according to the word of God. The Lord Jesus in his last comments with his disciples said, I want you to know who you are, your servant. Your servant that is to be characterized by serenity and peace. A servant that bears witness of me, that bears fruit for me qualitatively who you are, quantitatively 
in bringing people to Jesus Christ. And you are a person who lives the totality of life for the glory of God. Are they big questions? Who am I? How am I to act? What am I to do? What is the purpose for my existence? In the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus tells us all the answers to that. Happy are we if we do it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful teaching from your Son. May we be servants, enjoying the peace of God, bearing fruit in character and in quantity, fulfilling the purpose of all creatures, of all creation, to glorify you. We pray this for our mutual benefit, for the salvation of people in this world, and for your glory in your Son's name.